Thanks for tuning in to Charlottesville Soundboard. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every other Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. It's almost the first day of school, or at least it would have been before COVID-19 completely upended the fall semester. With exactly one month until local schools reopen for the fall and UVA students are supposed to return to Charlottesville, we talked to Billy Jean-Louis of Charlottesville Tomorrow about how the 2020 school year is going to be different. We also look back at the 1918 flu pandemic in Charlottesville and Albemarle on what has and has not changed about how we respond to widespread viral threats. We're now in a once in a century crisis and the people back then were in a once in a century crisis. But first, it's been nearly three years since the violent white supremacist rallies of August 11th and 12th. On Thursday, August 6th, the Albemarle County Board of Supervisors voted unanimously to begin the process of removing and possibly relocating the Johnny Reb Confederate Monument directly outside the courthouse in downtown Charlottesville. On their tour of the Confederate monuments in downtown Charlottesville, Dr. Delane Schmidt and Dr. Andrea Douglas tell the story of how this monument was erected and the messages it has sent to the community for over 100 years. Is basically stamping this space, the white preserve. This is the first downtown Confederate statue that's put up. It's put up in, in 1909. Now there is another Confederate soldier statue at the Confederate graveyard on UVA. There's over a thousand Confederates that are buried there. And there is a, a Johnny Reb there. That was put up in 1893. The, the memorializing that, that took place in graveyards, it was about, it was about mourning and memorializing. It's only into the early 20th century where there's this kind of migration like a Trojan horse, you know, out of cemeteries and into public squares like we have here. A large proportion of these Confederate soldier monuments that that are put up all across uh, the South and and in Virginia, uh, uh, an inordinate number of them are put on courtyard lawns and it's, it's done for a reason. If it said CSAs, it says here, so that's the southern one, and the ones in the north are the USA, and they are placed in northern towns in order to talk about the unification of the United States, where these clearly are talking about something quite different. Reconstruction was that 12-year period from 1865 to 1877, when there were biracial governments throughout the South. Virginia was the first state to be readmitted to the Union, and the, the requirement was write a state constitution that's up to snuff with the U.S. Constitution. So this new constitution was put in. Black voters, black male voters, were voting in numbers, were getting elected to office, were becoming delegates in political parties, you know, becoming delegates and, and senators in, in the legislature. And if you go to the Heritage Center, there is a, a little bit of an article that says, and I'll paraphrase, the Negroes are free. They found a little school, they're learning to read and write. They'll want to sit on our juries, they'll be, want to be in our parlors, and then they want to marry our daughters, right? So that's the concern of 1865, September 1865. And on the white population of the white locally. People. In the white imaginary, there is still this fear of a tyrannous majority. That's a direct quote from the installation speeches. We can actually tell a lot about these statues and what the people thought who were putting them up by reading about the ceremonies. And the Confederate veteran who gave the kind of the address for the statue, he, he was he was kind of complaining at one point that, that, well, you know, people say that 
the result of the Civil War was so great that it you know, freed slaves, but actually it's just a worse slavery because now even white people are enslaved. So this is the uh, you will not replace us of 1909, basically. I mean, it's just, there's some very deliberate work being done here by the installation of this, of this statue and a kind of anchoring of public space and specifically the courthouse. Remember, this is the first one that's downtown here. The vote to end Johnny Reb's century on the courthouse lawn is a victory for activists who have been pushing for this decision for years. However, the racial inequity and injustice that Jelaine Schmidt and others say the statue represents can still be seen in many areas of life in central Virginia. African Americans are twice as likely to be hospitalized for COVID-19. They are five times as likely to be arrested by the Charlottesville Police Department, and the rate of black homeownership has fallen by a quarter in the past 10 years. Well, what got kicked up after the summer of hate, you know, in 2017, was the everyday white supremacy. And white supremacy isn't just Nazis marching through your streets or the Klan gathering in, in a park. It's encoded in housing our patterns housing patterns, zoning, zoning yeah. rules, you know, <laughs> policing practices, you know, that discriminate against people of color. The statues and that are just kind of manifestations in, in stone and metal, white supremacy, very visible, that has revealed kind of broader, everyday manifestations of white supremacy. In the next segment, we check in with Billy Jean-Louis about how local schools are adapting to the ongoing pandemic. So in the past month, both Charlottesville and Albemarle schools have had to make big changes to their plans for the school year. Charlottesville City Schools will start the year with entirely virtual learning, and Albemarle County Schools will be almost entirely virtual with a few exceptions. So let's start with the county schools. What is school going to look like for students in county schools when they go back on September 8th? That's a terrific question. So to my understanding, the way it will work is that they'll have someone at the school to assist the students um, in the school building. So talking to the spokesman for the county schools, the students, although they will be in the school building, there won't be live courses happening. So what will happen is just like you send your child to the school buildings, then there is going to be someone who volunteers to assist your children with the virtual learning. And that's just some students, right? Yeah, so uh, the plan is for some students so that those students, the the categories, uh, they're just uh, students with special needs, English uh, language learners, uh, as well as students who don't have access to the internet. Now, one of the questions that still need to be uh, answered is just, when we're talking about special needs, the county did not talk about how will they determine which children who have who have a special need will be put in the in the building when we're talking about you know a child with a special need there are multiple types of disabilities right there are the ones that are visible right the most the more severe one and then you have uh children who have special needs but those uh they're invisible uh and only the person who is impacted by that a disability knows about the disability or the person who is closed uh, to that person. So the county still has to release details about like how will they determine uh, who, you know, like what type of uh, special needs children 
get to go to school uh, in person. So taking, you know, special needs students that the school board says can come into school or the schools say can come into school, English learners and um, students without adequate Internet access, about how many students is that roughly? Um, the total will be around 1,000 to 1,500. Uh, but then of this total, right, 100 of these students will be uh, special needs. So does this in-school exception apply to students whose parents have no other options for child care? The county has not, to my knowledge, discussed in full details its plans for like child care. I do know that the, uh, the city schools had uh, its board meeting yesterday. Um, I have not learned much about, you know, the, the county schools um, child care plans. Can you tell us about the city schools child care plans? We all know that the city schools is opting for virtual only, right? No in-person. But then in terms of like child care, uh, according to the presentation um, yesterday, uh, the city schools will partner with uh, the Boys and Girls Club. Uh, they're still in discussion with other third parties that can provide that could provide child care. So what would happen is that you will see them providing training to people who can assist uh, children with virtual learning in these facilities. And when I'm talking about facilities, I'm talking about, you know, the Boys and Girls Club. Uh, additionally, uh, if these uh, third parties do not have enough space, right, because they still need to social distance. So what would happen then, um, the city schools will then provide its building so that these this children, right, that the Boys and Girls Club can assist them in the in the city schools uh, building. Now, the big question is um, the, how much will child care cost families? And board members, uh, you know, wanted to, to take a look at this in terms of like, you know, uh, they wanted to look at it where no parents is left behind, like take a look at it from a from a, an equity lens. Have they said anything about how families will like get access to this child care? Will they have to apply? They're still trying to iron out these details. So what some of the questions I have is just like what age range, right? Like how old the, ch the children have to be for them to qualify? And uh, another one is just like, how much will child care cost these families? Uh, what hours uh, will they be serving uh, these children? So these are all remaining questions. So the city has a plan that they're working on for child care, and the county will have limited numbers of students in the building. Has the city said anything about how they were going to accommodate these students, people without stable internet, special needs students, and English learners? So, you know, it, it's just like there, there is a lot to digest, right? Uh, so you have nutrition, you have English language learners, you have special needs. Um, in talking about special needs, there were just like, you know, discussions about like what they're going to be doing with IEPs, which is individualized educational plan. So what that does, it's supposed to uh, essentially meet the needs of, you know, a, a child who has special needs. So that's what IEPs uh, do.
But then some of the things that they were also talking about is just like those who have severe disabilities, right, who would require that one-on-one, how would you handle this, these types of situation? Um, nutrition, how the food will be uh, delivered, uh, whatnot. English language learners. One of the things that I learned about English language learners is the fact that according to the presentation that each family will, will have a case manager and the case manager will then be in contact with the family. So you talked to a family with a special needs student in the city schools. Can you tell us a little bit about their plans and concerns for the fall? The families that I talked to, they mainly had questions. They just didn't have plans for themselves of like how they will be dealing with their child's virtual learning. So they were waiting for the city schools to, you know, reveal you know, how they're going to be assisting these kids. One of the parents said some of the help that she received from the city schools were uh, was not sufficient um, because her child needed that one-on-one, right? And then she still had to go to work. So the biggest question right now is just like those children who need uh, that one-on-one, what what happens to them? Because their, their parents uh, still have to go to work. What indicators are the two school boards looking at to determine when it will be safe to return to in-person instruction? These things have not been developed yet, whether you go at what point do we reopen or what are the protocols to shutting down? What I do know is that the divisions said that they will be monitoring, you know, cases. What that would look like in terms of like, what are our protocols? Like, what do we look at? What are some of the indicators that we will be looking at to say we need to reopen and and these are the rules you know that we need to follow and quite frankly um even the cdc has not put out a plan that says okay this these are the protocols that schools need to follow to reopen so what that tells me is that you know each school division is then left alone to make that decision whether you know they should reopen or they should not reopen What have you been hearing from parents about how they're going to manage work and now having kids doing virtual learning at home? One of the people that I talked to in the uh, in the story about, you know, special needs, she told me that it's almost impossible, you know, to be able to care for that one child who needs that one on one attention and still being able to do uh, their job now. The last family I talked to, she told me that she and her husband, they took turns to help out their child. But then at the same time, that's not the same case for everybody, right? There, there are going to be children who are from a single parent family, right? So, you know, that might not be the, the same thing for them, like having parents alternating and being able to uh, help them out. Billy Jean-Louis is a reporter for Charlottesville Tomorrow. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the university. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center. During these challenging times, the Southern Environmental Law Center is remaining strong and resolute in protecting the fundamental right to clean air and clean water and a healthy environment for all. Our next segment is brought to you by our assistant producer, Sarah Howarth. 
During this episode of Soundboard, we'll also discuss the 1918 influenza pandemic and its effects on the Charlottesville community, especially in terms of racial disparities, instances of unity, and how our experience with COVID-19 compares to that of the influenza pandemic. We consulted Adeen Kelly, a local expert who wrote a detailed entry about Virginia's battle with influenza in the Encyclopedia Virginia. My name is Adeen Kelly. I'm on the faculty of the UVA School of Medicine, where I do research on social and economic history of health in Virginia, but especially extreme events like epidemics and pandemics. I think it's important first to set the stage. In 1918, the new and deadly influenza virus was introduced to the United States and the rest of the world. Countless people lost their lives, and it is documented that around 16,000 of those were the lives of Virginians. Virginia became susceptible to the virus due to the travel of infected military personnel in and out of the state. The first death from influenza in Albemarle County was recorded by the Daily Progress on September 30, 1918. Similar to the protocol of today's pandemic, authorities began to manufacture masks, ban public gatherings, and shut down schools. Young adults were hit the hardest. All the social gatherings were forbidden by the mayor, and this included everything from pool halls to concerts and church services and that sort of thing. The Red Cross chapter made masks, but not all people wore them, and very few places required them to be worn, and there were no requirements here. At first, the mayor of Charlottesville only shut down public operations for nine days, The schools were closed, both the city schools and the county schools, and they closed a little late because the advice that the superintendents of schools were getting was that it was okay and the students were actually safer in school than they were at home, but that began to change and so they closed all the schools and they stayed closed way down into November. October was our hardest hit month and so that's when the schools were closed. Entrepreneurial druggists looking to capitalize on this crisis patented quack remedies with catchy names like Kilicold in order to draw in desperate customers. Doctors were overwhelmed by the influx of patients and struggled to find an acceptable treatment for the virus. Charlottesville and Albemarle had more doctors than towns and counties of their sides, but it's because of the university hospital, and that served basically Charlottesville and the nearby area. We do know that doctors were terribly overworked. They sometimes worked around the clock, and especially that would be true outside small towns where the travel times out to rural areas may have been bigger. To make matters worse, there was a shortage of valued nurses due to the staggering numbers of patients in need of care. The city of Richmond began to call on students, trained or untrained, to care for infected individuals. Third and fourth year medical students of the University of Virginia were asked by the State Board of Health to volunteer. There is no way to overstate how important the UVA hospital was. Martha Jefferson Hospital had 40 beds, and that would have been pretty normal for a city the size of Charlottesville then. But UVA Hospital had 200 beds. Increasingly, all of the beds filled up with influenza patients. And when you look at the ledger of the admissions to the hospital, you see more and more each day, and soon... Every line on every page is influenza patients. And during the worst of October, no more admissions. No more patients could be taken in because the hospital was completely full. Volunteers were extremely important. 
some women actually volunteered to take care of overwhelmed families. And that was a very brave thing to do because this was a very scary illness. Charlottesville had a district nurse, which had been provided by the state, and she had been here for some years. She put out a call for volunteers, and people stepped forward, most of them women, but women and men. And so volunteers worked with her to help patients and families, and a lot of what they did was distribute food. Now, there's an interesting story about the food. In addition to people making food like soup for patients and invalids and distributing it themselves, there was also a system where people could donate food ingredients and they would be cooked up and distributed. And one of the people who was very prominent in that was named Nanny Cox Jackson. And she was the domestic sciences teacher at the Colored School. That was its name. It was later changed to the Jefferson School. And she and her volunteers cooked the food So you can see that volunteerism made a great deal of difference during the pandemic. A list of the nurses practicing medicine in Albemarle County in Charlottesville during this time includes 87 women. Many of them worked in the UVA or Martha Jefferson hospitals, sometimes splitting their time between both. It is also clear that not all of these women were listed as trained nurses, illustrating the area's desperate need for sometimes untrained volunteer assistants. This pandemic, as well as today's, further laid bare the ugly racial injustice in the world. There was segregation in the university hospital. Martha Jefferson took no Black patients at all. UVA had Black wards. They were not as nice as the white wards were, but they were there and people were given hospital care. But there was complete segregation. As far as I can tell, there were no Black nurses So it would be white doctors and white nurses taking care of the black patients. 40% of the influenza deaths in the death certificates were of African-Americans, although they made up only 29% of the population. So there is a gap. And it's hard for us to know what those factors might have been that led to it. But one of them may have been general health were the African-Americans generally as healthy as the white population? And we can't know that, but we do know that poorer people usually have more health problems than more well-to-do people. And Blacks would have probably been the poorest people in the city and the county. The 1918 flu pandemic was only 53 years after local liberation of enslaved people on March 3, 1865. The pandemic was happening simultaneous to the construction of local Confederate monuments, seizure of Black-owned property throughout downtown Charlottesville, and the reign of Jim Crow and racial terror in Charlottesville and the South as a whole. And the other thing may have been access to doctors, because doctors would have charged fees and some families may not have been able to pay those fees. Now, in ordinary times, doctors often did not charge their poorest patients. And so we might think that during the epidemic, doctors did see patients who couldn't pay, but there's no way we can know all of that. Overall, 53 doctors signed death certificates. There are more doctors listed as being here, but they didn't sign death certificates, so we really don't know. Three of those 53 doctors were Black. One of them appears to be away on military service. And one of them did not sign very many death certificates at all. And so we don't know any more than that. 
But one of these doctors, George Ferguson, was a very prominent member of the Charlottesville community, not just the black community, but the whole community. He was very highly respected physician. He was a graduate of Howard University School of Medicine. And we know where he had his office. He had his office over on East Main Street, so we can go look it up today. There were numerous segregated emergency facilities, but some white physicians even segregated black patients into the basements of emergency hospitals. This was the case at the John Marshall School in Richmond. The health of black patients was, and still is, deeply affected by blatant medical racism. Maggie Walker, a leader in Richmond's black community, was called upon by Governor Davis to provide aid during this worldwide crisis. In response, she created an emergency hospital for black patients at the Baker School. Its leader became Walker's personal doctor, a surgeon named Dr. William Henry Hughes. He eventually began his own Richmond-based practice. During this time, a growing number of black medical professionals arose in Richmond. In 1903, the first black hospital was opened by Dr. Sarah Jones, the first black woman to pass Virginia's boards. Many black physicians in Richmond trained at Howard University before returning to Virginia to practice medicine. The final death toll in the Albemarle Charlottesville area was said to be 237, although it was impossible to account for the unrecorded deaths of those living in remote locations. Adine Kelly stated that she believes nearly 500 deaths truly occurred during this time. Almost half of all the recorded deaths were influenza deaths. It was recorded that about 2,100 residents caught the deadly virus. The population of Charlottesville around this time was about 10,000, while the population of the entirety of Albemarle County was around 26,000. A children's home was established in downtown Charlottesville for children who had lost both parents to the virus and no longer had family to care for them. The last death from the virus in the area was recorded on January 30, 1919, although people continued to fall ill around the world until the following summer. By November 3, 1918, many public venues had reopened. The U.S. government avoided mentioning the severity of the pandemic pretty much altogether, and Virginia Governor Westmoreland Davis followed suit. During wartime, the U.S. government and state governments often believed that imposing a quarantine would cause low morale to plummet to an even more dangerous level. Adine Kelly also spoke about the 1918 influenza crisis in relation to COVID-19 and what we might learn from the pandemic of the past. I think now we want perfection. There have been miracles of medical science that seem to solve almost everything for us. And so now we're quick to forget that epidemics and pandemics are unexpected and they're always terrible. And so we want our medical system and our government to do everything for us and do it absolutely perfect and do it now. Scientists have been warning for decades that there was going to be another pandemic at some at some time, and there have been some preparation at some levels for that sort of thing. But the world has been woefully unprepared for that. We're now in a once-in-a-century crisis, and the people back then were in a once-in-a-century crisis. I think what we can learn is that pandemics are always unexpected. At the time they start, they always take us by surprise, and I think we have to consider that that's normal and we can never be fully prepared. Somehow we have to keep in the front of our minds that this is probably going to happen sometime and it's going to be pretty bad. One thing I can say is that this time we're getting off light. We do not have the death rates that they did back then. We're going to have a vaccine. 
The question is how fast and how effective. And our communication is contributing so much to our ability for research to be communicated around the world as we confront this. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Mary Garner McGee. Our assistant producers are Arian Ballou and Sarah Howarth. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Marin Alasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. <laughs>